Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. By the middle of the 1960s, Vietnam had become the hot point of the Cold War. As America's military presence in the country escalated, so too did public opposition to the conflict. College students protested on campus, writers and musicians like Bob Dylan created works with an anti-war message, and prominent public figures like Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali all took stands against the conflict. But not everyone agreed that the Vietnam War was wrong. So after visiting troops involved in the fighting, America's most famous red-hating patriot John Wayne decided to make a film to show his country exactly why they were fighting the communists. That film was The Green Berets. To help me look at the movie, I'm joined by a commie-loving pinko liberal. He's a placard-waving peacenik who longs to live in the United Socialist States of America. Joining me once again is Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Thank you, Will. I think I'm going to make that my email signature now. <laughs> you must uh, you must let me know how that goes down with your fellow Americans. I will, I will. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back because uh, I think we've got a really interesting film to talk about. It may not necessarily be a particularly good film to talk about, but it's I think it's interesting. And not least because it's John Wayne's only Exploding Helicopter movie. Really? It is the only one he's ever made. I could have swore it would have been at least one more because he's done more than one war film. Well, he you know, made a lot of Second World War movies and helicopters weren't in service during that particular conflict. And uh, I don't know if he made any Korean war movies. If he did, I've not seen them. So this is, uh, as far as I am aware, the only uh, John Wayne explaining helicopter movie. Well, I'm I'm honored to be part of this program to have this conversation. So uh, before we get stuck into uh, the Green Berets, though, I just wanted to check in with you about anything interesting you've seen lately. So uh, what you got for me, Nick? Uh, I recently saw Nicholas Winding Refn's latest film, The Neon Demon. Uh, I was lucky enough to catch a screener of it. And even though I get to see the film for free, like I want to go back and pay money to see it again because I still don't think I saw what I was supposed to see the first time around, if that makes any sense. Neon Demon follows this girl who's kind of come from small town USA into L.A. She wants to be a model and her career is taking off really quick. Um, she starts to make friends within the industry and then things get weird in a sense. I mean, obviously they're going to get weird. It's a winding reference film, but there's something about this movie that the entire time I'm watching it, it really felt a lot like David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. But if it had been done by like Alejandro Jodorowsky and it's absolutely gorgeous, it's a totally gorgeous film, but at some points it's more style than it is substance and i don't even know how to describe this film it's just one of those films where as i watched it sometimes i'm bored out of my mind and other times i'm like this is fascinating i want to see more and i want to go back into the theaters i want to see it again and i and i want other people to see it so i can talk to them about it well i've not seen this but i've seen quite a lot of reference other movies and he's a director who basically the world needs to wake up He's the emperor and he's wearing no clothes. His films are just, you said it yourself, they're style over substance. They look beautiful. They've got these soundtracks, but there is no freaking substance there whatsoever. And, and people are, you know, looking for meaning in it. And they're just kind of, oh, I should be thinking something. I should be seeing it or I should be experiencing these particular issues. There's nothing there. They're just empty, vacuous vehicles of nothing. See, when I'm watching this, there's one scene where I, that thought is running through my mind. Like, there's 
in my head, I want to find something. I want to find the meaning behind it. I want to fig- I want to unlock this puzzle and figure it out and be one of those to be like, oh, I got it. And, and yeah, it's a little pretentious, a little dickheady to say, sure. But I want to, I just, I want to figure it out and I want to know. But then another part of me is like, oh no, this is just, he's just with us now. Like there's no way that he knows what he's doing with this scene. Well, I think he shouldn't be making movies. For me, he's a commercials director. He should be making like car adverts, perfume adverts, things where the, the product is essentially the same as anything else out there. So you just got to create this candy floss around it in the form of like images and music to, to try and sell it. You know, he's, he's got nothing to say for me as an artist. You know, it's funny you say that. Have you seen those ads with Chris Pine where he's selling some kind of perfume by like Armani or something? I haven't. Uh, I have seen the terrible Jared Butler ones, though. I will have to look those up because I've only seen the Chris Pine one. It's basically Chris Pine shows up at this party and all these girls are just, you know, really giving him the goods with their eyes. They're like, if you want me, you can have me. And he's walking along and he gets to this balcony and like there's lights like artistically hanging from the ceiling. All of a sudden they explode. He whispers in or he leans in to kiss this girl. But instead he whispers like, did you hear something? And clearly they heard something because lights just exploded inches from their heads. And there's like this thumping bass sound and the the whole time I'm watching this Reffin film, I'm like, at any moment, they're just going to stop. It's going to fade to black and it's going to say like Dolce & Gabbana or Armani <laughs> or Michael Kors. Like it honestly, like you said, every almost every scene in that film feels like it's just an advertisement for a product. But I don't know what that product is. <laughs> well, it sounds like I'm possibly talking you around to my view. So uh, hopefully I can fully convert you. Right, I think it's time to get stuck into the Green Berets, so let's listen to the trailer featuring a rather portentous voiceover. They're elite corps commandos, nameless and faceless in a hundred newsreels and dispatches. Now you'll know them, and you'll know there are as many different kinds of curry as there are names. Colonel Mike Kirby, the pro. Beckworth, the doubter. Sergeant Muldoon, the bull. Doc McGee, the dependable. Captain Nim, the hater. Sergeant Peterson, the con man. Sergeant Kowalski, the killer. Sergeant Provo, the humble. You'll know them all in the Green Berets. Green Berets came out in 1968. The film was the pet project of John Wayne, who produced, directed and starred in the film. The plot sees Wayne's Green Beret colonel lead a platoon of men to try and secure a crucial army outpost that's on the front line of fighting. But joining Wayne on the mission is a sceptical journalist who writes for a newspaper critical of the war. Alongside the Duke, the cast features David Jansen, best remembered for his role in the classic 60s TV series The Fugitive, George Takai, a.k.a. Mr. Sulu from Star Trek, plays a Vietnamese soldier fighting against the Viet Cong. And Golden Era Hollywood veteran Bruce Cabot pops up in a small role. Nick, what did you make of the Green Berets? You know, I've seen this a handful of times, but I can only have remembered the middle battle scene that happens. So as I watched this, the beginning opened up with, you know, the song over the credits. And I like stuff like that. I like the old school style of credits where they show you like the entire credits of the film during like a musical number or scenes. It's kind of like a, like an overture in a musical. And I really like that. And that was probably the highlight of the film. It, it, <laughs> it was downhill it went, from there. It went very downhill very quick because I started looking at things and 
some scenes they're just kind of talking and I'm not paying attention to the actors. I'm looking at like what's going on behind the scenes or I'm looking just at the setting in general. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like Vietnam at all. This looks like they're just in the middle of the woods somewhere hanging out. Like the trees don't even look like they're in Vietnam. They don't even it doesn't look like a jungle. It looks like they're just in the wilderness in the Appalachians or something. Well, I think this film was uh, made on location in Georgia. Oh, there near, you go. <laughs> near a military base there. So, uh, I think that's what you're picking up in terms of the uh, environment in this film. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I don't think Vietnam has pine trees. <laughs> could be me. And, I'm, and if I'm wrong, I'll happily admit that I'm wrong, but I don't think they have pine trees. There are a whole lot of pine trees in this movie. But uh, what were some of the reasons, though, that you didn't particularly, uh, you know, the kind of the, the undergrowth and the shrubbery aside, what were some of the reasons that you didn't like this film? I think what just really hurt me was just the dialogue and the acting. The dialogue was so ham-fisted and poor, and the acting was even worse. And the way they carried themselves throughout the film, like it's a military film. These actors are, are playing military soldiers. There's a bit of discipline there. Yeah, they're going to cut loose and have fun every so often, but have some – have I don't want to say respect or dignity because that's not the words I'm looking for, but – just have the know with or the wherewithal to know that you're playing a soldier and soldiers are going to act a certain way. Don't just kind of walk around like it's a Western taking place during the Vietnam War. It's not that. It's this different animal altogether and just give it a little more respect, I guess, is the where I am looking for. Then just give it a little bit more respect because this is just – it's bad. A lot of bad acting, especially from John Wayne. And I'm like, come on. You've done better than this. You can do better than this. You're an Academy Award-winning actor. Give us better. Well, I am in a similar camp to yourself because this film does have a reputation as a stinker and I'm not here to try and revise that critical position on the film. I think, as you said, the script here is abysmal and, you know, this is, you know, John Wayne made this as a propaganda film and it carries its political message with all the subtlety of a kick in the balls for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It, this is a very long movie and it feels every minute of it. I mean, it is, it's hard, you would think, to make a boring war movie because things are going to explode. It's a life and death struggle. But somehow John Wayne has managed to make a really boring war movie. Absolutely. And it's made even more boring by these characters that are supposed to be, you know, quirky and interesting. And they're not like it just falls flat and feels like Disney was just like, well, every film has this. So it, it just felt very cut and paste. And like they were trying to be something that they're not. And I read somewhere that, like you said, critically, like it was torn to pieces. And John Wayne was like, oh, they're just talking about the war aspect. If you take that aside, like just take away the fact that it's a propaganda film, it's still a really bad movie. The acting is poor. Some of the line readings like in the beginning of the film, there's a Q&A with reporters uh, where they're talking. <laughs> you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. They're discussing like different weaponry and stuff. And one of the reporters goes to ask a question and literally fumbles a word but keeps going like that should have been cut. Take it again. Even some of the soldiers, while they're answering questions, they would like say a word two or three times in a weird way before saying it properly and then moving forward. It's like, what did you just do the first take? Where's takes four and five that are clearly better than what we're seeing? It's just it's frustrating to see a film like that. Well, that scene at the beginning of the film is it really sort of sets the tone, I think, for the rest of the movie. It is got to be some of the poorest 
writing that has ever been committed to celluloid ever. I mean, it's so clunking and half-fisted the way in which it sets up the political themes or the political ideas that are about to be played out in this movie about how you've got these, you know, stay-at-home liberals who've uh, never never had been a day in the army, critical of uh, Uncle Sam's efforts in, in Vietnam, faced up against these brave soldiers who are out there on the front line fighting world communism. It pretty much flatlines. Like, as soon as the movie starts, it's dead in the water. And like you said, they, you know, make it a point to show you that the audience is liberal. Like, there's even the woman's like, I'm a housewife. Okay. Clearly, they're trying to make it so that, you know, women don't know what they're talking about kind of thing. And then every soldier, no matter what their answer is, they get applause. They, oh, he, they, you know, nailed it. You really nailed this guy. There's no give and take. And I understand it's a propaganda film, so obviously there's not going to be give and take. But at least... Just something, just one little line that makes you maybe think the other way. Make the other case strong so when all of a sudden you deliver your answer for why we're doing this, it's that much better and that much stronger. So let's get into this movie a little bit more. So uh, what did you make of this film as a representation of the Vietnam War? I thought it was poor. I felt like it was a dress rehearsal. It almost felt like they were showing you training camp. Like they go to a training camp and they say, this is what it's going to be like when you get out there. And they just kind of filmed that. I didn't feel like I was in Vietnam. I didn't feel a sense of urgency. I didn't feel any connection with the characters going through. So when certain characters meet their, you know, uh, demise and when other characters triumph in certain moments, I just didn't care. And that's really, that's not good. I should care. I should want to be concerned when, you know, certain things happen. I should be, you know, almost in tears when other characters are upset at the events going on. Even the comic relief just feels really, just way overdone. Uh, Peterson, there, his character, he's got all these amenities and luxuries. And I'm like, that would never happen. That would ne- never in a million years would the, would all the stuff that he brings with him happen in that movie and even when they introduce new characters it's like why why are we who's lynn why should we care about who lynn is why are we even at this nightclub is this a nightclub (laughs) am i having a stroke are you having a stroke why are we watching this movie (laughs) it just gets so poor and the decisions they make like in the beginning when um uh, john john wayne's after they have their meeting and they head over to where these guys are having a demonstration of you know who they are and what they do and all the languages they speak. Why are they even there in the first place? Just to set up that scene where they're having a conversation. That's it's so lazy to me. It's unbelievable how lazy this is. It's just it sucks to see this movie. It really does. Uh, I think you touch on like one of the main problems of this film because it is such a one-sided uh, representation of the of the Vietnam War. And if you're going to make a propaganda film, you do need to actually even if you've got a viewpoint that you want to put across strongly, you need to kind of show some of the other viewpoint because you have to show those in conflict. And then obviously you resolve it along the lines in which you want to put forward your message. But this film, it doesn't show anything of the other side of it. So it just feels like, as I said, just being need in the groin. So we see the, the, the Vietnamese in this film, the kind of Viet Cong, you know, they are, they're going around, they're kind of massacring sort of innocent villagers. You know, they're, they're, all of the terrain is kind of filled with these traps. 
And, you know, the American troops are going around, you know, handing out for Medicare. The Viet Cong here are just uh, reduced to sort of like whooping like Indians, you know, stripping dead soldiers of their boots, of their weapons. You know, they're just, it's just such a one sided representation that you just can't you kind of think if the idea of this film was to convert people, you just kind of think, well, it's not going to convert anyone because this film is is so one-sided it's not going to take and it's not going to move anybody from one side of the argument to the other exactly and when they're talking about the Viet Cong, it's almost like oh they're over off screen doing something like oh this is pretty bad over here like in the film they attack a bridge why are we attacking this bridge what is the importance of this bridge show me what is happening in the country where this bridge is a important and b why we need to attack this bridge with american soldiers you know they show the the soldiers as you know like you said they're kind of taking the the clothes off of the soldiers dishonoring them and the scalping everything and and the hooting and the hollering but yeah i understand that they're doing that to american soldiers but show us show us that they're doing it to their own country and why we need to be there. That's what a good propaganda film is going to do. It's not going to say, look what they're doing to us. It's no, look what they're doing to their country, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and here's why we need to be here. And I think that's also where the film falls apart because we never see that. Even in the end, when they go on their second mission to kidnap someone, we don't – why? Who is this person? We haven't seen them throughout the whole film, and all of a sudden they're important. It makes zero sense. And – just building on something that you, you're already alluding to, you come out of this film being none the wiser as to what the Vietnam War is all about. Uh, you know, so you just think, well, OK, what is this? What is this war about? Why? Why is America fighting this conflict? Why should they feel that, yes, that this is a, a war that is worth fighting? I, you know, I've watched this film twice now and I am none the wiser. Yeah. And they even try to do an emotional appeal. With the, you know, elders in the village or the local villages and even the little girl, like, you know, she got her foot uh, stuck on a punji stick and they're trying to, you know, show, hey, you know, we're the good guys and we're going to help you feel better. And, you know, we're here to help your village. But it it falls flat because, like you said, there's no presence of the Viet Cong and we don't know why we're there. There are some other aspects, though in terms of this as a representation of Vietnam that uh, that sort of uh, stood out to me uh, as uh, somebody sort of viewing this film uh, sort of 40 years on. And I was quite struck by the absence of conscripts in this film. And uh, from my uh, sort of the bit of research that, I, that I've done, I kind of underst- I understand that between about a quarter and a third of the soldiers in country in Vietnam were conscripts. But we don't see any conscripts or draftees in this film whatsoever and i was also struck by the age of the soldiers here uh, i think the average age of soldiers in vietnam was 22 um, here though we've got john wayne who is a, playing a 61 year old colonel a lot of the the actors here are, are in their 30s or, or 40s and it just felt a very you know just the, you know the american soldiers didn't look like american soldiers in terms of their uh, in terms of their age, they also didn't look like uh, American soldiers in terms of the ethnicity. There's uh, quite a notable absence of uh, of black or uh, Hispanic soldiers here. And yeah, as I say, you know, there is no. Yeah. And that could have been something they could have easily brought up too, and showing like, you know, we need these young men to handle these tasks. We need, you know, these people to handle out these actions. And we don't see that. Instead, like you said, we just see these old men just kind of hunkering around, you know, <laughs> just, and it just, if I'm watching this and I'm like, why? Like, the, even when they're going through the training camps, everyone looks so old. <laughs> and even, even later, in later on films, like, you know, Apocalypse Now, 
and Full Metal Jacket. We see soldiers of all different ages, of all different colors, races, creeds, so on and so forth. We just don't see that with this just bland kind of Mickey Mouse you know, here's the war. Here's how we do it. I, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm trying to think of, you know, a metaphor for why they would show, you know, there's men all fighting a war and, you know, as opposed to, you know, children or boys or whatever. But even in my head, like, I can't think of anything that would say why this was a good idea. So this was made, as we've already uh, talked about, as a piece of pro-war propaganda. And in order to kind of deliver that message, we have David Jansen's character, Beckworth, who is this journalist who starts the film as being hostile to the war. But by the end of it, he's become a sort of fully paid up flag waver for the war effort. Uh, what did you think of his character arc here? I, I rolled my eyes so hard <laughs> at the end of the film. Because they're talking to this guy. I'm like, why are they talking? Oh, it's the reporter. Jesus Christ. Like, it's just, it's so bad. Like, that's easily the second most ham-fisted thing in that film. And and when they try to show he's compassionate and, and, like, giving his necklace to, like, you know, the little girl and stuff. And then, like, they give the necklace. Like, there's just really weird interactions with him. Like, he's the bad guy. And he's not. He's just doing his job. And his job is to report what's going on. Although you could fill the books with the stuff they don't report on. Ha, 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 ha. It's so bad. It was well, so bad. It was, it was, it was so bad. And yeah, it, his character, I felt really needed a backstory because we don't actually know why he is against this particular war. And, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, what if they made him like a Korean war veteran or something? And so he, he'd fought in one, one conflict and he just thought you know what we should you know he'd, he'd seen too much there or or his experiences in that conflict meant he was opposed to this one or perhaps he had a relative who had died in vietnam we never find out what his objection is so we don't really then have any stake in understanding his conversion from where he is now to where he is at the end of the film as this new convert to the to the war in vietnam exactly there's no motivation so there's no payoff when the big turn happens and what did you make of the plot of this movie? We, we've kind of already sort of touched on it in a couple of places to me, but it did seem to me that this film didn't really have a story to tell. It felt like it was all over the place. And it bothered me because we could have gone in what there's so many directions they could have gone in. And instead they were kind of like, well, let's just follow John Wayne around. And whatever happens, happens. We can show you all these different facets of the war and how bad it is, but how good the Americans are just by these random assortment of things. They should have followed a particular group of soldiers through their journey. They set it up as, you know, John Wayne's his colonel. He's going to go check out these different camps to make sure they're good. Or, and by good, I mean, you know, fortified well and good withstanding. But he, he only ever goes to one camp. They never show him going to these other camps. Now, if he was traveling to these other camps and these events happened during that, I think it would be a little more believable. I think it'd be a little bit more enjoyable because now you're putting him in different situations and how are they going to survive? And, and it also shows the ruthlessness and the cunning of the Viet Cong and how they use the jungle um, and the, the and their environment to their advantage. But we don't get that. And then you shoehorn in this whole we're going to go kidnap uh, you know, a general – and we're going to go to this nightclub to figure out why. And then even when they go to this nightclub, right, They John Wayne gets up and leaves and they're like, oh, we didn't get a chance to talk about the plan. Then why the fuck are we in this nightclub listening to this awful goddamn song? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? This is pointless. At that moment, I'm like, oh, so they don't care at all. 
I agree with you. This film feels like it's got two separate plots which aren't actually interlinked in any particular way so the kind of the bulk of this film is john wayne going out to this base which is on the front line uh it's kind of regularly being attacked by the by the Viet Cong, and we see the Viet Cong sort of launch these various attacks against the base and then they they launch their big assault on it and we see the base being overrun and uh, you know it's completely destroyed but the americans are able to sue to sort of to uh, take it back over but they're really sort of back to square one so you just kind of think well what was the point of the storyline around this particular base in vietnam because it hasn't really been given any kind of strategic importance and it's been completely destroyed and all they're going to do is rebuild it again so and presumably Viet Cong are just going to come back and attack it again and then we have this second plot which is around the kidnap of this uh, high-ranking general and that for me felt like it had only been included in the film to give the green berets or to give john wayne's character a kind of moment of success a moment of triumph because as i was saying the overrun and destruction of this base is it's kind of well everyone's back to square one what was the point of that you know what's really weird as we talk about this plot or lack thereof it's almost as if the film does the opposite of what it's trying to do in the beginning you have these soldiers in the military saying we're going to go in there we're going to do all these things because communism is bad and blah 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 but when they get in there all of a sudden they're over their heads they don't have the materials necessary so they're stealing it from other divisions the only success they have is when they kidnap someone which how is how and when is that a military thing uh, even when they're i guess like quasi interrogating uh one of the soldiers this guy was like you know this guy needs due process and you know there's no law here and it just really this whole film just to me backfires the critics to the vietnamese war at the time like to ask you know why are we in vietnam and i watched the green berets and i was left thinking the same you know asking myself the same question yeah it's just staggering so, Nick, I think we're kind of wrapping up on uh, the Green Berets. You've got any final thoughts? I had a gripe and I had a fun little anecdote. Uh, the gripe is at the beginning with they're at base camp or the military camp before heading out to Vietnam. There's a scene where they're shooting clay pigeon targets and John Wayne just very lazily picks up his gun, shoots it, and the target explodes. As someone who shoots clay pigeons regularly, this really bothers me because the gun stock would have slid off his shoulder. The barrel would have struck him in his face. <laughs> and to think that anybody can just willy nilly pick up a gun and go shooting it without, you know, the kick from the gun is just is it's un irreprehensible in my mind. What I also liked about that particular moment was uh, somebody comes walking over and just after John Wayne has shot that clay pigeon, uh, they say good shooting. And John Wayne can't leave it at that. He has to say that's normal yeah like just thanks and then go on but no again this movie is less about the war and more about look at me i'm john wayne <laughs> the other interesting what a little anecdote is my family or at least my father at least and the men in my family have grown up watching a lot of john wayne a lot of clint eastwood films and on occasion we would watch the green beret and they also have this thing in my family where they like to throw out obscure trivia and they'll say questions like, you know, what are two, I think it's now three films that Clint Eastwood have died in. And then they'll like try to name it and they'll go, no, it's this one. And, you know, kind of like fun little one-upsmanship in a way. Well, one they always threw around was what was the name of Hamchuck's dog in the Green Berets? 
And it would everyone would like try to guess it and guess it. No one ever knew. And one day I'm like, you know what? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to figure it out. And I did. And I don't even think it's a real word. I think it just might be like a Vietnamese slang for dog or something. But the dog's name is Jamoke. And it's just, I don't know. I, to me, that's not a real question. If the dog had a real name <laughs> and like everyone called him that name, that's fine. But that's not a real trivia question. Well, talking of Hamchuk, there was a very he's he plays a very interesting part in this role. So uh, Hamchuk is this uh, Vietnamese orphan who is uh, living on the American soldiers uh, army base. And there's a very bizarre scene involving him where he goes in to see this uh, comedic light relief character called Peterson, who sort of asks Hamchuk, you know, where he sleeps on the army base. And, and Hamchuk just sort of indicates that he just sort of sleeps wherever he can. And Peterson is, is turning in for the night and, you know, Hamchuk doesn't go anywhere. And then Peterson invites Hamchuk into his bed and then drapes his arm over Peterson and the two of them go happily to sleep, or at least that's what I hope they do. <laughs> immediately, immediately the kid's brought into his bed. Not, hey, why don't you go shower off because you're filthy? Not, hey, let me go. I have all these crates for some reason because I have access to all these things. Let me make you a bed. Instead of slowly building that relationship to a point where you care, it's just immediately, well, hop in bed with me, you filthy orphan. <laughs> <laughs> And then they use Hamchuck in the most ham-fisted way in this film at the very end when John Wayne's like, we're doing it for you, kid. And I'm just like, holy <laughs> John. Like, real. that's the that's the line you're going to end with. Here's the real reason why we're in the war is for kids like him. Like, come on. It's really weird because, yeah, Peterson invites Hamchuck, you know, into his bed with him. And then, you know, John Wayne goes walking off into the sunset you know, on this beach with Hamchuk in a, in a way in which, you know, if this was a a film with a romantic female character involved, it would be John Wayne and, you know, Maureen O'Hara walking off, you know, into the sunset together. But no, it's with Hamchuk the kid. So he's, he's almost like a surrogate uh, romantic lead in this film in an odd kid way. <laughs> In a very odd kid way, because like he's so young, he can't hang around and be a part of the military. There's some protocol there, I'm sure. <laughs> well, they don't seem to be following too many uh, military protocols in this movie. So, you know, maybe they'll be uh, giving him a rifle and sending him out into the jungle. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? The Green Beret, too. I would love to see that. Hamchuck's Revenge. <laughs> They've made wackier films, so it's not entirely without possibility. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk... Hello, Julie, what the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spots sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download this show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. We're back, and now we're going to look at the exploding helicopter action. 
This occurs as the Viet Cong launch a big assault on the Green Berets army base. The attack happens as Wayne is flying back to the outpost on board a helicopter. The chopper is hit by what looks like a rocket or mortar round and bursts into flame. The wounded Whirlybird starts to drop from the sky before crash landing. As the flaming fuselage rolls across the ground, Wayne and two of his companions are able to scramble clear. The rest of the passengers aren't so lucky and the Duke's efforts to rescue them are hampered by a further explosion from the wreckage. Nick, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? When you contacted me and said, hey, would you like to talk about the Green Berets? Part of me was like, I didn't realize there was an exploding helicopter in the film. I'm kind of excited to see where it happens. And then I got this scene and I'm like, "Okay, clearly this isn't it. There's got to be something in here that's a whole lot better than what we saw because this is bad. It looks like a poorly controlled RC helicopter just kind of floats and meanders to the ground. And then as it hits the ground and rolls, you can see the actors for a split second standing there waiting to jump out and give this big dramatic performance. It's bad. It's I, I guarantee you it's one of the worst helicopter explosions I've ever seen in my life. Wow. I say wow because I actually thought this was, was fairly good. What? I mean, How? <laughs> In what way is this good? Well, I guess I'm being somewhat more charitable than you because I'm coming at this from the perspective that this film is being made in 1968. So they don't have access to the sort of, you know, special, you know, they've only got the access to the special effects of the day. There's no CGI here. And I actually thought they constructed quite a clever sequence here, combining real helicopters, uh, models, you know, there's a really, I thought, really good shot of a fuselage of a, of a real helicopter that's on flame being swung across the screen on what I imagine is a crane they've got it on. And I just thought that actually, given the, the effects of the day, that this was actually quite a well-constructed scene. To me, it doesn't hold up. It looks like a really bad student film. And the fact that they jump, they come out of this helicopter, no bruises, no cuts, no scrapes, and they just get up and keep going. There's not a minute to reflect and think, wow, I could have died there. There's no emotional heft to it. And it just, it bothers me. It bothers me so much watching this. I'm like, how? How and why? Who let this? They couldn't have added more flames. They couldn't have done just something. It was, it's missing something. It's missing. Just that one little thing of like true danger that you get with an exploding helicopter. I do agree with you. There is a sort of an emotional moment here that is is missed because you know, we do see the helicopter sort of uh, you know spinning in the sky with you know John Wayne and the other passengers on board. So they must know. Oh my goodness, we're in a damaged helicopter. We're about to crash. So you'd you'd think there'd be some sort of emotional reaction from them. And again, after they after they crash on the ground and they're able to scramble clear, obviously not everyone was able to escape. And there isn't any sort of sense of them going through a life or death moment. So I do agree with you there that that aspect is missing. And I think that would have made the scene a bit stronger. But uh, in terms of the technical aspects here, it clearly shows the limitations of the day. I am not here to pretend that this doesn't look anything like a combination of model work and stage props and so forth but i still think it was a decently constructed sequence for 1968 based on your argument i'll give it a little bit more credit and that okay it's creative but it's still garbage (laughs) (laughs) i'll concede a little but not a lot (laughs) i did have a few uh, trivia points that i'll just quickly throw in here here we go uh, 
This was uh, the helicopter in this sequence was a a Bell UH-1D helicopter, which uh, saw a lot of service in uh, in Vietnam. So the various models and uh, the UH denomination of this particular helicopter became sort of abbreviated and shortened to uh, Huey. So when people talk about a Huey helicopter, it's because it, it's they're basically talking about one of Bell's UH series of uh, helicopters and UH being shortened into Huey. So I thought I would throw that bit of trivia your way, Nick. Pretty cool. That's different. I, you'd think it, I mean, I feel like UH is short enough. Well, Huey, I guess it rolls better than UH because of the way it goes, but that's neat. Cause I know, um, when I hear it, I would think like, okay, like Hugh so-and-so created this helicopter, or created a certain apparatus, but I like that UH Huey. And uh, here's a uh, sad thought to ponder. 7,013 Huey helicopters saw service in Vietnam. Do you know how many were destroyed, Nick? Uh, let's go with, mm, I'm going to say 6,204. Almost all the helicopters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the death toll was high, but it wasn't that high. It was 3,300. So very nearly half of all the Huey helicopters in Vietnam were immolated in a chopper fireball. That's crazy to think about, too, is that you have so many of these machines and you got to know going in like, well, we're going to lose half of them. And it makes you wonder, do you still build each one to the top specification necessary? Or do you know, like, well, we're going to lose this one, so maybe not put in the seatbelts or maybe not put, like, certain things in to kind of save budget-wise or to put into ones that might last longer? I only have these uh, trivia statistics for you, Nick, I'm afraid. Sorry. I don't have any deeper knowledge of the construction and manufacture of helicopters to uh, to offer you. Apologies. You look at more of the deconstruction statistics. <laughs> I definitely look more at the deconstruction <laughs> statistics. Well, I think that just about wraps things up for this show. Nick, thanks for joining me once again. Do you want to take a moment to tell people where they can find the stuff that you're involved with? Absolutely. Film-wise, I'm involved with FrenchToastSunday.com. Uh, we're just a small collective in Baltimore, Maryland, where we talk about films and films that we love, films that we don't even love. We'll talk about those, too. Find us FrenchToastSunday.com. Our podcast is there as well. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at FTS Tweets. I know we have an Instagram. I don't think we do anything with it. <laughs> we should be. But Great plug. <laughs> thank you. Also, and this is more of a personal side note here, I was involved with a comedy project last September up in uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. A special came out of that called Accuracy Before Comedy. Find it on YouTube. Take a watch. There's a lot of funny individuals. Yes, I'm on there too, but there's a lot of funny people there, and they deserve some really good recognition. Well, thanks a lot for that, Nick. And yeah, after you've checked out that YouTube video, don't forget to go and check out the Exploding Helicopter website. We've got full reviews of the Green Berets and many other films. You can also follow what we do on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.